Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. All right, so we're 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 with you bright and early this morning uh, with Dr. P- Peter Risenson. Uh, Risenson, I already butchered your name, man, and it's not even early on my my side of the country. Uh, Peter's up at six a.m. Uh, in Arizona because he is one of the in one of the states that has seceded from uh, daylight savings time. So uh, he's two hours. Uh, earlier than San Antonio. So there's not many people that operate very early in the morning. So I appreciate you uh, making the time to record this episode of the Broken to Unbroken podcast with us. So thanks, Peter. And I'm, I really, uh, it was interesting, the interaction that you reached out in because you're good friends with uh, Dr. Ben and you reached out to me saying, hey, I heard about you through Ben and you are are good friends with Ben and you just kind of exposed me to some of the things that you've experienced in your life. And I was like, hey, that is some great, great content. So can you just give us a little bit of a, a brief uh, bio on what you do currently, where you grew up, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Nick. It's great to be on here, and I, I love what you're doing for people and uh, shaking up the shaking up the uh, world for people by giving them information and just feeding them in that way. I think we all have that desire to be fed with good information, and I think that's something that you do. So kudos to you on that. Um, yeah. So I grew up in. Well, I was born in Michigan. We moved to Minnesota. We moved to Arizona. And then I lived in Minnesota for a stint in like really formative years of my life, five years. We lived on a uh, family farm, my dad's family farm where he grew up. It was a dairy farm in Minnesota. And um, those were great years. Those I think back to those years and they were some of the best years. Uh, as a young kid, you know, just being able to do whatever I did, help birth cows, you know, did, did a whole lot of, uh, there was just life on the farm was like, a microcosm and a macrocosm. It was like life, you know, happening in, in that sense. But then we moved to Arizona, and uh, this is where I've spent most of my life. I, Scottsdale, Arizona, I uh, went through all most of my education and uh, and life here, and um, went down to the University of Arizona to study nutrition, nutritional science uh, after high school and some college. Um, there was a lot of things that happened in that period of time in that, in that period there, but went to university of Arizona, studied nutritional science, graduated from that university and decided I was going to go to naturopathic medical school. Um, that whole journey is like, I'm skipping over all the major details there, but went to naturopathic school cause I wanted to be able to help people find what is what is their essence that's going to bring them to health and wellness in their life? Because everyone's kind of got a little bit of a different definition of what wellness and health in their life is. And I just want to help people thrive. So I started a company called LifeDoc. And at LifeDoc, we, I, my goal and my main purpose is to get to people, to help them get out of their own way in whatever way that they're in their own way, 
so that they can thrive in life in whatever whatever manner that is. Sometimes it's it's a mental and emotional thing that we're working on. Sometimes it's really a, it's a physical thing like type 2 diabetes or an autoimmune disease. Um, but I just want to help people thrive in life. So that's my passion. Yeah. And can you kind of go through how you found your way into that career, like any life experiences or what kind of led you down that path? Because I know I got into what I do because I had a lot of bad medical doctors growing up in a small town in Wisconsin. And it was just a lot of like three minute doctor's appointments where the hand never leaves the door. Uh, and it was just like, okay, I've already been on this medication six times. And then I found uh, my chiropractor who cared and I'm like, okay, this dude knows his stuff. He cares. He, this is the kind of healthcare provider I want to be. What kind of got you into this field? Because it's not your typical, like, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. Like, it's not a field that a four-year-old kid goes, oh, I want to be a naturopathic doctor. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's actually a really good, really good question. Actually, something that something that's worth thinking about, you know, and, and I think uh, I grew up, I always wanted to be an engineer like my grandpa. Uh, my grandpa is someone I really loved and admired. And he, he designed brakes for cars like the Prowler and, you know, like worked on the Hummer and a lot of things like that. And so I always admired his, um, his analytical skills and his ability to kind of like, you know, work on things at that kind of level. And I uh, went through school and kind of really realized in high school that math was, I did not enjoy math. I was, I was okay at it, but I was like, you know, it's not my thing. I don't, I don't really think that I'm, and through that time, I guess I, it's so funny looking back, I think all these years, I really realized that my whole passion in life are people. You know, I don't know if you know, like, Brit, you know, Myers-Briggs, whatever, like I'm an ENFP. So it's just like, I love people and that's my passion in life. If that's the thing that gets me going every day, well then that's what, you know, that's where I ended up gravitating towards. So I'm kind of, kind of giving you a little bit of a lead in here, but so I did a stint in a summer, which absolutely changed my life. So in, in high school, I was uh, struggling with um, I, so substance abuse snuck in at around 16 years old for me. I was, you know, overweight as a kid. I was husky. I was really struggling with self-esteem on that end of things because my friends didn't have to worry about it and they were of normal weight. They, they could do whatever they want. They could eat whatever they wanted. They really didn't have any issues. And I was, I was the big kid and really, you know, there's that age of self-consciousness where you really realize like, okay, I'm not, whether you're not fitting in or things aren't going right or, you know, whatnot. And that ended up being kind of, that was high school for me. And I got into hydroxycut, which at the time had ephedra and I really got hooked on the stuff and I was using it and it, I was using it three times a day. It cut my appetite totally. And I didn't need to eat at all. Really. I was just focusing on all I ate was protein shakes meat and vegetables. And that's all I ate. And, um, and whenever I had an appetite, cause that stuff just made me so wired that it kind of knocked my appetite out. And so that whole, um, going, going on that really, you know, I really, I learned a lot from that journey right there. And I really started this fascination with like the body, but in a really bad way. I really experienced a lot of fatigue, a lot of adrenal problems due to that, because that was, 
that was almost two years. And, you know, even on the bottle, it said, take a break. And it's like, nope, I just abused it. You know, that's just, and I realized that that's my nature is I'm more of a, and that, that, so that pushed me down this obsessive person's, you know, this obsessive route. And really what ended up happening is I ended up just, I wasted away to almost like 125 pounds, sopping wet. I mean, I'm five, seven at the time. And so what ended up happening is they pulled hydroxy cut, they pulled a Fedra off the market and I wanted to get my life together. I was really struggling with depression. I had, I had adrenal issues. Um, I was just in the dumps. Like I remember going to bed crying at night thinking like, man, if I could be taken away from the situation and I could, and I could get my life back, man, I'd do anything for it. But I was, it was that dichotomy of like being struggling with the addiction part and like wanting to be skinny and thin, even though I still felt fat, but I was thin and skinny and, and having lots of energy, you know, during the day at least, you know, but actually it was really fatigued, but it was the body image versus wanting to be well. And so, yeah. And your story really parallels that of Brett Bartholomew, the author of conscious coaching, uh, because he had to go to rehab for eating disorders. And now he's like one of the most renowned trainers out there. And it's pretty interesting how your story really parallels his. If you haven't read his book, it's really going to resonate with you. I'll dive into it. Absolutely. That's so cool. I've never heard of anybody really with the specific, you know, I, it's finally, it's actually, it's not been that long that I've really been sharing this story because I feel like it's a really important one. So it sounds like he's kind of paved the way with that, which is really cool because it's, it, yeah, it, it was a really, so it was a real big struggle. I mean, it was like, okay, do I want to get well or do, I, or am I stuck with what I really wanted out of this whole thing and this, you know, being obsessive about this. And they pulled a Fedra off the market due to the deaths that it had caused in professional sports and things like that. And I had signed up to do a sales job with a cousin of mine. I mean, this, his cousin was a guy I looked up to so much, and I still think he's just—he's the man. I—he's I, just—he's awesome at what he does. But it was a door-to-door sales job over the summer, and it was the most—you know—I heard this all these amazing things. Like it's a super professional organization; they teach you how to be a professional salesperson. It's not like some sleazy salesperson going door-to-door, but they teach you how to work hard. They're going to teach you positive attitude. They're going to like you're going to get your, like what I got out of it was like, okay, if you do this, like you could get your life back together again. And I just really threw myself all into it. And uh, the company's the Southwestern company. Southwestern, I believe, trains some of the most um, professional, hardworking ethics. You know, from, from that experience, I mean, that, that catapulted. So that summer, I was like, one summer, it was like 10 weeks of sales, Door to door was like 85 to 90 hours a week. And it was like the hardest summer of my life, but it really transformed me into having to take, you know, just to like take on positive attitude and affirmations and the life that I wanted to visual, you know, I I could visualize just to pursue that instead of focusing on just me, 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 me. It was instead like, well, how can I be of service? And that summer really transformed me from someone who was struggling with an eat disorder of eating and body image problems to someone who now I had more tools. Now I had positive attitude. Now I had, you know, this, this view on life that was like, okay, I can actually do what I want in life. And, 
you know, I can, I'm actually at the bargaining table here. Like I actually have a little bit of a say in, you know, what, what I'd like life to be like, you know, I, I think up till then, I didn't really realize that I, I had, you know, I had more of a say in it than just following some, you know, following some uh, random path that was given to me. And um, so I came back from selling books that summer and I ended up going to Finland for a year to study, but, and that, and that just, that was, that was a, just a fun, fun thing to do. I wanted to pursue, pursue that and go learn about my, my heritage, which is fin- Finnish. And then um, after that, I got a job in a hospital here in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona and started working in the hospital. I had gotten my nursing assistant license and I realized that, wow, my combination for my love for people and wanting to help people was where like this all came together. And I realized very quickly that this was something that I loved. How can I be of service to people helping them when they're struggling the most? So the ICU taught me a lot. I worked in the intensive care unit for about uh, two years in the medical surgical ICU. And then I worked in the cardiovascular ICU, which was like the open heart patients and, and a lot of the, that for about another year. And then I went to the NICU, which is the neonatal intensive care unit, which is where all the babies and premature infants and all that stuff go. I was there for about a year and a half as well. That was probably my favorite place of all of them. Cause I was like, Hey, these kids didn't deserve anything. They just, they, they just ended up here because of, you know, misfortune. Um, the cards were just, you know, the cards were just not, not dealt in their favor. It's not, because of any things that they did themselves. So in that mean, during that time when working in the hospital, I was going to school because I was like, okay, I'm going to pursue, first I thought I was going to pursue a, ner- a career in nursing. And I did all my nursing prereqs, checked everything off, applied to nursing school. They said, yeah, you're accepted. I said, ah, oh, that was too easy. And so I was like, I thought it was going to be hard, you know, to get in because everyone was talking about oh, how hard it is to get into nursing school. I was like, oh, okay. Well, that was, I was like, you know, kind of took a step back and was like, wait a second. And at the same time, it's interesting, there was a doctor at the hospital who's an internal medicine physician, and, and uh, I followed him into rooms, you know, in the ICU because he was treating people, and I was just seeing what he was up to, and he asked me some questions and some intriguing ones, and I asked him some good questions, and, and uh, he told me to get Guyton physiology uh, book uh, by Guyton. It was a physiology book. And yep, it's on my shelf right now. Uh, all you chiropractors have it. I love it. I absolutely love it, man. You guys are scholars of physiology. I absolutely think that's amazing. So I got that book and I started reading it. I mean, I'm I'm like, you know, I barely started even just college, right? And I'm looking at this physiology book going like, okay, this is really cool. And so um, Dr. Gordon would ask me questions and, you know, he would really, we, I remember that I kind of remember that time when I really thought medicine was like, I was destined for something more than nursing was when he, we were in a room and he's this 87 year old lady and she had high, high cholesterol. And he was like, she's 87. She's got, he showed me the labs. She's like, she's got high cholesterol. Should you know, should we put her on, should we put her on something to lower her medicine, her lower cholesterol? And I said, no. And he's like, why? And I, I had thought about it. What didn't come quick, you know, quick to me, but I said, no. And he's like, well, why, why not? What are you thinking? And I said, well, she's lived this long with this. She's like 87 years old. I don't think that, you know, there's probably some, I didn't know what they were, but I, at the time, and I said, there's probably some detrimental things that could happen by putting her on this drug. And he said, absolutely. He said, you should go into medicine. And so that kind of 
gave me this confidence working in the unit too. It was like, oh wow, I'm seeing a lot of cool cases. The doctors, the nurses interacted with me. They taught me, they treated me like someone who wanted to learn and I really did want to learn. So they taught me a lot. And so when I was going to, I, at the same time, I, I transferred down to the University of Arizona in Tucson and started studying nutritional sciences there because the nutritional geekiness hadn't really left me. It was something I was passionate about. Um, but I wanted the science, I wanted the nutrition piece, and I wanted to do my pre-medical studies so that I could apply to, to medical school. And so I went down there with this, like, I mean, just piss and vinegar attitude of like, I'm going to like get a 4.0, I'm going to study really hard, I'm going to do what I need to do to make it. And uh, school was awesome down there. I mean, I went, I was a non-traditional student in the fact that I had already done three years of, you know, uh, two, well, I did my you know, nursing prereqs. I had done some uh, pre-med prereqs at the community colleges here in Phoenix while I was working full time. And so going down to U of A was like, I didn't live on campus. I lived off campus in an apartment with a, a friend and uh, I worked super hard. I was started cycling then too, got into road biking. Um, I was training for a half Ironman. I was kind of doing, I was, I was a teaching assistant at the university um, for the first year students. And really just started loving what I was doing. Like I was really into the nutrition stuff. I was really into the pre-med stuff. I was doing the training. Um, like the stars were totally aligning for me. I was just like, this is incredible. And I had met a pediatric surgeon who took me under her wing. And that was like a really transformative experience. It was the first person who like believed in me so much on a level other than just who I was as a person. But she believed on me. She believed in me as like a physician to be. And, and that was, that was an incredible experience. So that brought me, that carried me so far. I mean, we published some research together. I was doing some IRB work for her. And what ended up happening on the, in my junior, the end of my junior year, the very beginning of my senior year at the University of Arizona, um, I mean, like I said, the stars were totally aligned. I'm like, okay, a, a career in pediatric surgery is for me. You know, I, this, this surgeon had taken me under a wing. I had been learning a lot and everything was going right. I was like, I, I mean, life is so, like, life is actually cruising along right now at a really good clip. Things are pretty easy. I'm working hard, but things are going easily. And I remember like a week before I remember praying for trials one night. I remembered from a sermon at church where one of the ministers had said, you know, pray for trials that your, you know, that your life would be, you know, like that you would, your, what, your faith, faith would be strengthened, but that like you would, that life wouldn't always be easy too. Like the, the trials are good for us in life because they, you know, they, they take us places that, you know, only trials can. And it's, I remember this recently, actually. This wasn't something that I, I, I was reflecting on, it and I was like, wow, I, I really re remember that that was the case, that life was so easy. And I, so a day came, the 10th day, uh, so October 10th, 2010, I'm standing, waiting to cross the street back from the rec center to the University of Arizona's campus. A car jumped the curb, hit the traffic light pole, and the traffic light pole landed on my head, back in my head neck, and my back. That couldn't have felt good. It's definitely uh, an asteroid belt in your all of your stars aligning. Yes. 
absolutely. I mean, it's like the black hole in all of it was like, wow, like, look at this. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, everything, everything changed in that split second. It was, I was in the trauma bay. I was sputtering, you know, gibberish. I mean, I really didn't have any, my mental faculties were just, I was, I felt annihilated. I was, was pretty annihilating, um, to say the least. You know, mom and dad were called by the chaplain to come down to Tucson. I mean, that's never good, never good to get a call from the chaplain. And, um, you know, so I had, I had punctured a lung, uh, broke some, broke between, uh, thoracic vertebrae two and five. Those were compression fractures and some facet fractures there too. And then, um, I was bleeding in my midbrain. So they were just hoping and praying, you know, hoping that things would stop bleeding so they wouldn't have to open and, and, um, you know, monitor my, open my skull and monitor my intracranial pressures and things like that. And, um, I had a double, I had double vision, um, because the pole hit me on the back of the head, but I didn't see it coming so that, that there was a, you know, I had some, you know, and that's where like our, our vision, vision, the portion of our brain controlling vision is. So it's like, of course that, that impacted my vision. I had, you know, double vision too. And so that just, man, just thinking back to thinking back to those days, I mean, it was like, it was, it was the, if I'm to look back now, you know, looking back on everything, I, I still say it was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. And it really set me on a path that changed. It absolutely changed the course of my life. And looking back, it's like, I wouldn't wish that on anybody else, but at the same time, I wish that transformation on other people. And I, I, I don't know how people can get that other than having something serious happen oftentimes. That's a really interesting thought that that is kind of reframed as a positive experience. And there's a, there's a quote painted on the, the wall at, at Palmer College and says, the path of least resistance makes rivers and men crooked. Uh, and I think that that was just something to, it's kind of like a super hormetic response uh, that it was just like, kind of really control alt deleted your life to where it's like, all right, I really have to step back because you aren't really forced to step back and really uh, be introspective when everything is going your way and there's no friction uh, and you're just kind of blowing and going and everything comes easy and everything is good. And this really kind of pump the brakes on that. So that's very interesting how you can flip that. And a lot of people will go into this uh, poor me victim mentality and just crawl into a hole and use this and go, okay, I'm going to go on disability and I'm just going to sit on the couch and collect a check from the government. But you've really used this as a, uh, a strengthening experience. It's, it's interesting. I think the things that I can attribute most to that. So take me back. I take you back, taking you back to when I struggled with, uh, you know, substance abuse and all that at that point in my life, I mean, such a depressed person. And I think that the, I, I really struggled with who I was and whatever. And I think if it would have went straight from that act, from that activity to the head injury, I have no idea how things would have turned out. But what I do know is that that experience selling books transform my ability to 
have a positive attitude about life, kind of no matter what, what ends up happening in life. I mean, we always have the decision of how we're going to, you know, whether it's interpret it or, or what we're going to do with it. That summer really changed my, my ability to look at the world in a different way. And without that experience of selling books and without that mentor who believed in me so much, um, after the head injury, she came down to Tucson with her girls. I mean, she, she drove hours to get down there. She dropped her patient load, everything. She drove down there. She was by my bedside and she told the staff, the hospital, send me all of his records. I'm taking care of him. Um, he's going to be seeing me when he leaves the hospital and, uh, you know, I'm managing his care. She just, she just took over. And she believed in me so much. She had given me that research to do. We had published a research paper and had gotten published in the Journal of Pediatric Surgery. I mean, and I was the first author on it. She like let me do so much. She had given me so much confidence in my own abilities that when that accident happened, it's like I had had the momentum of, okay, I had been working on myself positively day in, day out. It was, a, it's the small things in life. You know, it's like the slight edge by Jeff Olson, you know, that book where it's like really the little things day in, day out that really either take you up in that positive trajectory or, you know, in that negative trajectory. And it's like, I was already on a, ne I was on a negative trajectory, right. You know, in that, in that time of my life when I struggled with that, with that eating disorder, but it's like, you take me out of that and I was already on a positive trajectory. So all it was was like a minor deviation for me where it was kind of like, okay, well, what, what's, what's to come of this? And for me, it was like back home at mom and dad's house. Um, I was pulled out of school. So I was in the hospital for a little while and in, re in a rehab hospital and got home and life was super simple again. Life was eating, sleeping, you know, being with friends, um, really just and movement it was very, very simple. Like I remember my mom saying, you know, you're getting irritable. It's time for a nap. You know, I felt like I was a little kid again. And I was like, wow, life is really, life is real simple. You know, and I, from where I had come from, it's like, okay, time to take a step back and just appreciate what's going on in life. Maybe it was, maybe I needed that slowing down. So what'd you do for recovery from this? Cause I, I know that there are a lot of traumatic brain injury things in the news with uh, CTE with the NFL and the NHL. And there's a lot of pending lawsuits, but there are a lot of just traumatic brain injury victims that I see with motor vehicle cases or construction accidents or, like even sports injuries, like diving and soccer and gymnastics. And you can't really take, uh, there's really a nonlinear response to the, how showy the trauma is versus the symptoms or how long they're going to last or how long the recovery is. Um, so it's not like, oh, it has to be a telephone pole falling on your head. Because uh, that's what ended my brother's bull riding career is he just had way too many traumatic brain injuries and like he would get one just from stepping off the stairs wrong and jolting his the pressure up through his hip and leg into his head. Uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about like your experience and any advice that you can give for those suffering uh, from past uh, like 
long past and recent past traumatic brain injuries? Yeah, I can I can speak from my experience on that. I the big thing that I and you let like it's very silent, right? You know, they call they're called the walking wounded for a reason, and um, it's it's true. Like people struggle and they look around them and they're like, man, everyone else is just kind of like living their own life. They think that I'm just fine and I'm struggling with whether it's memory or irritability or you know these different maybe depression maybe anxiety, you know, there's a whole host of things that can start to get triggered. And so for me, it was, you know, I'd get, I, I became more direct, you know, and that's a positive reframing maybe, but I think I became a little bit more short, shorter than I used to sugarcoat everything and super agreeable. And so after that, it was kind of like, okay, I had the use of being direct at the same time. The other thing that happened to me was I struggled, my memory struggled a lot. So I was in the re, so I'll take you back to the rehab hospital after I got out of the initial hospital that I was in, um, you know, right at the time of, right after the time of the accident, I was at a, um, health South rehabilitation hospital. And, and so it was interesting because they were focusing on my physical, you know, my physical body because I had broken some ribs and my back. Of course they, they had me in a, um, a, a cervical, you know, like a, a cervical thoracic brace, which is like a head and neck brace. Essentially, it wasn't screwed into my head or anything like that because they said C seven was maybe fractured. But what what I was in that hospital and going through my rehab, I was struggling. My mental faculties were struggling. I mean, I'm coming off of being a straight A student in, in the university, and I was struggling with people coming in. I couldn't remember their names. And I was like, I prided myself on being able to remember names. I was like, I, you know, I sold books door to door. I can remember things when they need to remember things. I can't, now I can't remember anything. And so the thing that bothered me the most was the memory part. And so getting home from the rehab hospital, I try to read. I couldn't read. I couldn't focus for more than like two minutes. And I had to read the pages over and over and over again. And I never remembered anything from what I was reading. I could listen to things. Listening was good for me. So I, I like to listen, um, audio, you know, audio, the audio channels definitely worked for me as far as helping me to remember things and kind of stimulating my brain. But I think the, well, then I went to neuropsychological, uh, I had a neuropsych, neuropsych evaluation. So the surgeon that I had was working with, she told me, well, she's like, well, this is, you know, she said it in her sweetest way. And it was so interesting. She said, you know, how she was able to frame it so positively. She said, looks like everything is going great. You're recovering smoothly. This was months after the accident. She's like, looks like everything's going well, but it'd just be great for you to get a neuropsych evaluation just to make sure you're in top notch for medical school when you get started, just to make sure everything's a-okay. And so I went and got that neuropsych evaluation. It was a probably, you know, two months after the traumatic brain injury or so. And, and it showed, you know, it showed these deficits because what neuropsych testing does is it shows you all this, you know, everything should kind of correlate, right? The brain function, there's going to, you know, you like across the board, you should kind of have some, you know, each category should have some resemblance and scoring to the next category. You shouldn't have these massive variations in like your IQ, for example, and your working memory or something like that. And so they kind of put all these, data points together and they said, wow, you, you, she said, well, you, I'm going to send you to speech therapy because speech therapy, speech and language pathology will help you work on these areas of your brain 
they're very dedicated to helping you hone these various areas, you know, and to work on memory tactics and whatever else. And so that was probably the biggest thing for me was utilizing speech therapy in my recovery. So the, the, my tips for recovery, um, sleeping, I needed to sleep. And sleeping for me meant sleeping at least 8 to 10 hours a night, more closer to the 10 more often. And even sometimes a short nap during the day when I was getting fatigued. And fatigue didn't mean I was working because I certainly wasn't working. Like I was at home recovering. My, my work at that time was going to PT and then walking. I would walk anywhere. I usually walked around 12 miles a day. There was a golf course that was close to my mom and dad's house. And I'd walk around it twice. I'd wake up in the morning. My, my routine was very simple. I'd wake up in the morning. You know, I had, we had a dog at home and I would spend time with the dog because she was just so loving. She knew I needed care and spend time with her for a little bit. And I'd eat breakfast and then I'd go to PT if I had PT that day and come home, I'd eat lunch and then I would go walk around the golf course. And I'd come and I, after that, I'd come home, take a nap, maybe if I needed a nap after I'd sit around for a little bit. And then I would wake up from the nap. I'd go for a walk again, come home in the evening and my dad would be home from work and friends could come over or whatever else. And we would visit and sit in the backyard. And so it was like that simple, simple routine again, which was like not focusing on having to remember anything really. I was just like, I didn't like as far as scholastics, like I wasn't studying or anything like that. I was listening to podcasts, but I could, I could remember, you know, I was listening to things cause I like that. But as far as you know, I wasn't in speech therapy yet. I had gotten my neuropsych evaluation, but the very simple, simple routine was what kind of carried me through. I think the good nutrition, the walking on a daily basis to just keep that circulation going and to help me lower my, and to sleep well. I mean, think about all these anti-inflammatory things um, and just kind of letting everything settle because I know Hormones get thrown really out of whack with uh, traumatic brain injuries. Um, a classmate of mine that I graduated with out of naturopathic school, her dad is Dr. Mark Gordon. Um, and Dr. Mark Gordon is the, the, um, the most famous physician working with athletes and soldiers and people who have hormonal, he, he actually works with traumatic brain injury patients um, and helps them balance out their hormones and stuff like that to help them spare their brain and, you know, help them get back on track essentially, because research has shown now, you know, that people's hormones and everything else get messed up big time from, from the hit to the brain, because, you know, we've got the, um, the anterior and posterior pituitary there in, in the middle of the brain. And it's such a sensitive area and those delicate structures get injured with these TBIs, it could be multiple concussions. It could be, you know, battle. Now I didn't know about Dr. Gordon, you know, until I found out about, you know, I was still, I was in medical school, but I feel that some of the depression I suffered afterwards, um, even though I was working really hard and doing what I could do, I did have a little bit of depression that kind of lingered afterwards. And I think that part of that was due to the hormonal imbalances, but for the most part, I did pretty well with it. I mean, between walking, sleeping, eating well, and having friends over and visiting, you know, going to church, just doing things like that. It was very, that simple life kind of carried me through, um, carried me through until I was able to go back to university. 
Yeah, and that's interesting that you mentioned sleep first because I just I finished uh, Matthew Walker's book Why We Sleep uh, last year, and that book is amazing and goes through a lot of how sleep basically takes everything that you learn during the day, and that's basically on a jump drive. And when you get good, high quality, slow wave sleep, that basically takes it from the jump drive to the hard drive, and it's there for long term recall and the the glymphatic system and how your kind of janitorial crew for your brain comes through when you sleep and how all these people brag on how they can get a, get by on two to four hours of sleep. And there were some prominent politicians like Reagan and Margaret Thatcher that bragged that they could get by on four hours of sleep and both of them got Alzheimer's. It's not really a coincidence. So I think that that's a, a really key piece. And it was very interesting that you mentioned that first. And I, I preach on sleep, hydration and nutrition. And those were kind of the pillars of your recovery, along with a good social network and spiritual health. So I think that's a a really powerful combination that has a lot of synergistic effects in recovery from all things, including TBI. You're so right. It's so simple. I mean, really to go back to the basics, like if we can, we, we love to get all complicated and to get into things and dive into the hormones and dive into this and dive into that. But it's like, and not that maybe the hormones don't have a huge thing to, to play with that, but it's like, if we can nail the basics, like life, like let's come back to foundational principles and let's build off of that. So if you, if you don't have that stuff in order, I mean, you know, I don't know how many things are, how many other things are actually going to work for you, you know? Yeah. And the, if you look at some of the most prominent thinkers in history, I mean, uh, Nietzsche had, he walked like eight hours a day. Uh, and that's when he wrote some of his most prominent works because he would just go walk and think. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it's just, you can get a lot of, a lot of, productive things done when you're just out there walking. And I think our, our philosophy now is like, all right, to be working out, you got to be puking on a floor with a barbell doing CrossFit or powerlifting a deadlift bar off the ground until you bleed out of your nose. But there are a lot of people that just, they stay super fit and the, the elderly people that I treat um, they just go for daily walks with their dog and they have a regular movement practice and they're, they're super healthy. So it doesn't have to be this high intensity stuff. So I think that that was a, a valuable thing that you were able to do of like, yeah, you don't have to walk 12 miles a day, but if you got the time, it's a pretty low load aerobic exercise to where you're not going to get a lot of repetitive trauma from it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The whole sleep thing. I, Sleep. I, I know people who who brag about not sleeping much either, and it's it's exactly that way. I mean, I, I really, they're they're struggling with their health. I think anybody can limp by on anything up until you know in their seventies. But it's kind of like how slow and how like what's the decline like for you? I mean, is it just that you you you're healthy playing tennis and then you just don't wake up one morning, or is it that you're on you know you're you're um, exhausting your Medicare, you know, spending plan, and you are, you know, seeing the doctor every third day, you know, surviving on, uh, you know, 
surviving on, uh, you know, surviving on fast food and four hours of sleep and whatever else. I mean, you know, it's like wellness is, you know, we're on the same page on this for sure. Cause it's like, wellness is like, wellness is, um, is something that we need to, is, is something that you and I both work on with people. And it's like, because that, like that range is so big. I mean, people can survive doing one thing, but if they can realize how good they can feel doing this other stuff and what benefits they get out of it, it's just, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, the simple stuff, I I'm a big fan of that. I mean, I think, you know, even, um, the blue zones, I mean, maybe you've read up on the blue zones a little bit, but, but those people, like they're just doing movement, purposeful movement. You know, it's not like you're saying, you know, banging out CrossFit every day or whatever, not that CrossFit can, can't be good for people or whatever else, but we are in such a, we as people, we want to like try to hack things so much and like work. So like, how can I work really hard here? So I don't have to work, you know, so I can like, how can I do one hour here? So I can take, you know, 15 hours off here. Well, life doesn't really work that way. I mean, it's, it's more, um, I find that I end up coming back to these simple principles too of like, what do I really enjoy about working out? You know, I did, I, and I enjoyed CrossFit when I did it, I did it for a little while. But I stopped doing it and I was like, hey, what do I really want to do? And I was like, you know what? I want to get back on my bike. And having taken a hiatus from riding my bike was like, now I'm riding like two to three times a week with a buddy of mine. And it's like, it feels so good, but it's so fun. We converse the whole time. Not that we're not breathing really hard, but we're riding and like we're social creatures. So I feel like the walking activity that I did then was really um, therapeutic for my brain. And it just allowed me to kind of like free things up, you know, it's like, take that, you know? So what ended up happening during that period of time was, was interesting because I'm walking and I'm thinking about all these cool things that, you know, could the possibilities in life, essentially that's what came up for me during these walks. It's like, wow, well, what are the possibilities for me in life? I'm like, man, they're manifold. Like I could do anything. Here I am. I'm out of school. Like, this is my ticket to freedom. Like, I can do whatever I want now. I don't have to follow the path I was following. Like, what better excuse do I have than to say, hey, like, that didn't work out for me. I'm going to go do something different or whatever. And I'm kind of like, okay, I can, <laughs> this, is my, this is my free check to do whatever I want. So I think that, there's two interesting points. Like I think that people put exercise in a silo, like they'll take the elevator and escalator up to the gym so that they can get on a treadmill um, or they'll drive around for 15 minutes to find the closest parking spot so they can go walk two miles in Costco uh, in, they don't, they, they try and go, okay, you're only exercising if you're at the gym, but purposeful movement, like taking the stairs or, parking a little bit further away from the store or just going out and walking somewhere. If you only live half a mile from work or letting your kids walk to school, cause they're not going to get abducted. Uh, I think that's a powerful thing. And also the whole, like going from tennis to not waking up. I think our crisis of abundance in the U S is because our actions and our consequences are so far removed. It's like, Darwin is pretty good at teaching us like, all right, if you touch the burner on the stove, there's an immediate consequence of a burn and you don't do that. But the consequences of you not getting sleep and 
eating bad food. They're so far removed in time from the actual action that created the consequence that our brain kind of has a hard time wrangling that in going, Hey, maybe I did this to me. It's not just this external, um, set of circumstances that is making me overweight or unhealthy. Yes. Amen to that. I mean, it's that long, you know, that we have this prolonged period of time before people even see the results of their actions. And, you know, we're so hardwired to avoid pain and to pursue pleasure that it's like, you know, you combine that, you know, you take that right there. And uh, if we're pursuing pleasure all the time and avoiding pain and, you know, not doing these things that we had to do up until, you know, this time of, like you're saying, this a period of abundance where we pretty much can do whatever we feel like. Um, it's, it's really, uh, it's really incredible how, you know, when you look at even the happiness of like these certain areas around the world and it's like, we have, we have so much here, but it's like, well, we have more, we're on more like prescription, antipsychotic, antidepressant, and, you know, anxiolytic medication than like anywhere in the world. And it's like, why is that? You know? And I think it's, you go back to the basics. It's like, are people sleeping well? Are people eating well? Like, are people taking care of themselves? Do they have a social network? Like, are they doing something of meaning in their life? Or are they just doing something because they're trying to get to that next rung on the ladder, whether it's the socioeconomic status ladder or whatever else. So yeah, it's it's interesting that the the far-reaching effects of the decisions that we make today, and that's where, like, I read Jeff Olson's book, uh, The Slight Edge, when I in my recovery, and I was like, wow, it's kind of like Darren Hardy's book, The Compound Effect, and um, that book really, that was what I read. Like that was my that book, and the other book that I was able to read in my recovery was The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge. And someone got me that book and those two books really, okay. I was like, okay, if it's the small, if it's the small things every day that make a difference, one from, from the slight edge. And eventually it's like compound interest that you just, you take off and you can get whatever you want from it, but it's going to pay off. And then two, if the brain is plastic, then you know, if this plasticity is such a thing that I actually can remodel my brain and make it into something that's, that I would like to make it into, what would I want to make it into? Like, well, if I can use these daily habits and work towards, you know, understanding and realizing that the brain can change. I'm like, that was really powerful. Those two books really probably transformed the way that I saw my future at that point. So, I'm just itching to get to this bike trip because most people, if they're interviewed, they're like, I'm going to Disneyland and you really kind of made a public decision. And I think those hold people accountable to even um, just almost crazy stuff and just go through the origin of that and the development of that and what that trip did for you. Oh, it's like the, one of the most favorite thing, like the best thing that one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. I think the best thing was obviously that I was, you know, (laughs) my parents and my family, I'm the oldest of eight kids. I love my family. And of course, number two would be marrying my wife. She's like the biggest support and and, uh, best person, you know, who I could have ever met to, 
to be on this journey of life with. But this bike trip, you know, I'm, I'm in recovery. So here's how it happened. I'm in recovery at home. I'm doing my walking and eating and socializing and just living the life that I was like, Hey, this is good. Like, this is the good life, you know, really kind of get, getting back to the basics of like, okay, this is what it means to live a meaningful life. And a TV crew came to the house because in Tucson, this was big news that this, this accident, this accident was big. They came to the house and said, well, it looks like you're recovering well. You know, they wanted to see me walking and what I was doing and they interviewed me. And uh, the reporter and Naomi said, so, you know, they're always looking for the next big story, right? It's like, okay, well, this is a good story. Well, what's next? And <laughs> what came out of my mouth was something I'd been thinking about on my walks and something that my mom and I had kind of been visiting about because I told her about it. And so she and I were just visiting, talking about it. I was like, well, I want to bike across the country. And it's interesting I made that statement. I think the first time I'd ever thought about doing anything neat on a bike was when I was 15 and I was biking to a job I had at a local ice skating, uh, an ice rink, a hockey rink. And I was biking there. I was probably like five or six miles away. And I just, that time on the bike with my skates around my neck, just cruising to work, I had spent time thinking about like, wow, it'd be so cool to just kind of get like lost on the bike. And my mind would just wander when I was on these I could solve the world's problems and my own issues when I was riding a bike. So it really kind of stuck with me then. And I had been biking before the traumatic brain injury. And um, so that popped up. I was like, I'm going to bike across the country. So it was so interesting that I made that proclamation right there. And it was interesting. Like that was all I needed for this whole sequence of events to just really get kicked into motion. I mean, I ordered the American Cycling Association, Adventure Cycling Association maps. I started looking into like what charity I was going to ride for. Um, I start, you know, I just like everything started moving forward and I got back to university in the spring. So the accident was in October. I took that whole, the rest of that semester off. I started back up in the spring at the university and I started riding my bike like 80 miles a day like not every day like three like two two times a week and i loaded i had panniers on the back of my bike and i went to the bike shop and the bike shop set me up they did a, a good like a bike fit on me and they put the bags on and they like supported me big time they like sponsored me it was really really a cool thing and it was because i had a vision that was greater than me it was like i'm doing this for a charity at the same time like i really wanted to I, this was going to be a transformational experience for me. So I didn't want to, it was still self, you know, focusing on, on, on me. It wasn't all on the charity. It was like, Hey, I'm going to do this for me. But at the same time, if I can raise money for charity, that's a cool thing too. And that was really, really a fun semester, like working back, working into shape for this bike trip. You know, I mean, I'm, I, I was prepared, I was preparing and preparing and preparing and um, what ended up happening then is summer came and I was like, okay, so I chose the route. I chose from Washington to Maine on the Northern Tier. And Whew. yeah, it's, it's the longest route is the reason I chose it because I, you know, I figured, well, you know what? I've never had anything easy. I, I, things aren't supposed to be easy. And if I'm going to go across the country, I'm going to go across the longest route and I'm going to really enjoy it. I like the northern part of the country too. And so... I was like, if I can go from Washington. And so flew up to Washington. They flew my bike up there. I biked around the San Juan Islands. 
off in Puget Sound and started across the country from there. Um, you know, went through Washington, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, Minnesota, and then I went up into uh, went went into Michigan. So, or well, Wisconsin, and then Michigan, and then don't forget Wisconsin. Don't forget Wisconsin. Yeah, it was like it was like a day. It was just right on the Great Lakes. It was so such a short period of time. It was two days, I think. I was there. So yeah, don't forget Wisconsin. Wisconsin's awesome. Um, so and then Upper Michigan, and then went into Canada, and the Upers. Yeah, the Upers exactly. And uh, and then from Canada, I went to New York and then Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. And the whole trip totaled 4,400 miles, and it took me 55 days. Wow. So lots of stories from that trip. Um, but the, I mean, the main, some of the main takeaways were like, okay, people in the heartland, you know, just across the country, people are good. We need to be able to visit with people like one on one, not have a media. You know, this, the whole media frenzy nowadays, which is just like polarizing America. I think people, you know, aren't visiting about things and they don't really want to understand each other. So it's kind of like, okay, they just kind of pick their side, dig into their foxhole, and, you know, they fight from there. And so it's kind of like, I really realized, that, man, this is, you know, and I, I, grew, I grew up a very, I'm, I'm a conservative nature person by, you know, I'm a conservative person by nature, I guess you could say. And biking across the country was really, inspiring to see and stay with all types of people. I stayed with really, really fun, you know, people who were like on the way far end of like the liberal end of the spectrum and people who were on the conservative end of the spectrum. It was just like everybody, but it was like people are people. Yeah, you don't, you don't find many conservatives in Washington state or Vermont. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, in, in um, those that's for sure you know what i mean it was the conservatives really like really big populations in like idaho montana north dakota you know you got the oil fields and all that stuff up there uh minnesota quite a bit of uh quite it's kind of a it's a lot of there's a lot of liberals there but there's a lot of you know conservatives there too i guess farm country but yeah it was it was interesting to just and and people of all different you know coming from all walks of life. I mean, people invited me in, you know, I'd meet people at like a grocery store cause I'd buy my groceries each day from somewhere. And then I would bring my food with me and, um, you know, and I'd make food. I just, I didn't really, I didn't bring a stove with me or anything. I ate mostly cold food unless it was like, I wanted something hot and I would go to a restaurant or something like that. And I would order something from a cafe or whatever. But, but people were so amazing. It was like, I'd meet someone and they, and they would be like, and I, and I would also ask like, Hey, you know, I'm just biking through, I'm riding for charity. I'm just wondering if you have a place where I could pitch my tent. And they would say, Oh yeah. You know, it's, this was a common response to be like, Oh yeah, sure. You can throw, you know, pitch your tent at, at my place. And you'd ride over to their place and end up visiting with them. And before you know it, they're like, Oh, you know what? Forget it. You don't need to pitch your tent in, in the yard. Just come and stay inside. You know? And it's kind of like, you got to know people and, the way that you get to know, I got to know people was by visiting with them. So that was a really, really cool part of the trip was really getting to spend a lot of time almost meditatively in the saddle, you know, on the bike, really just pedaling. I was by myself. So I pedaled, you know, each day, my average is 80 to, you know, 80 miles a day or so. Um, and just ride to the next place where I wanted to, to post up. And I was, I had really had a flexible schedule too. Like it was like, 
I just knew I wanted to be in Marquette, Michigan by the 4th of July weekend because it was an event that I was trying, I was going to attend. But other than that, I was like, hey, I'm just going to take it as it comes. And if really bad weather comes, I'm going to take a, you know, take a rest day. And if it's a, if it's an amazing day and I'm feeling really inspired or whatever, it's like, I'm going to ride really hard, ride really long, you know? So. So did you, was this just like, all right, I'm just going to meditatively ride or did you listen to anything or, or did you read anything along the way? Uh, Cause I'm one of the few people that like I can go run a 50 mile race and not have headphones in. And I enjoy the quiet because my day is constantly interacting with people and talking and conversing. So I enjoy like meditative silence of just like going and scrambling around on the trails. But did you kind of mix it up between silence and listening to some audio stuff or what did you do? Um, yeah, I did listen to uh, silence and audio. Yeah, I, a lot of silence for sure. And then there were days when I was like, okay, I just want to like, I had my mind on something. And it was interesting. It was like, I usually didn't want to be, it was when I would turn on audio and I just didn't want to like sit in the silence. You know, I didn't want to like be with my own thoughts, really. I just kind of wanted to like, check out of my own thoughts, right? And um I would, I actually listened to, I had, I had music on my podcast, but, or I'm sorry, on my iPod, but I also had like the complete works of Sherlock Holmes. And I listened to that, like must've been a few times. It was so cool. Like, yes. I, I love it. I just geeked out on Sherlock Holmes. So yeah, I have a big Sherlock Holmes quote on my wall of my office. The, um, the, I, I don't like stag stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Oh, that's awesome. That's such a good one. Yeah. Oh, that's a so great one. I'm a big Sherlock Holmes nerd. When we went to Scotland and in England, I was just like, oh, <laughs> this is where he went to medical school. And this is, uh, I'm just a huge nerd when it comes to Sherlock Holmes and all the, the modern renditions of it with Cumberbatch and uh, elementary. And I've seen them all and, read them all and have the audio renditions. So that's, that's definitely, a, a one of my favorites. Well, we share that for sure. Yeah. He's, I, I could listen to that over and over again. It's just like, and, and I have this, this uh, audio book that I got on audible and it's like a seven, I don't even know how many books there is in it. It's like one, you buy the one, but then you get all these separate books you have to download. You know what I mean? Cause it's such a big, yeah, there's eight parts. Eight parts. I have the same one. Okay. Yeah. It's so good. You know? Um, and so yeah. that, that was, that occupied definitely, that, that definitely took up time and I really, really geeked out and enjoyed that. It's, you know, it was, um, the simple, I, I love, I love, I love where he's educating Watson on just being, you know, on just obs the powers of observation. You know, he asks him, well, you know, um, it's essentially where he's educating Watson on the number of the number of steps that there are coming up to their, you know, up to their suites. And he's like, well, you know, how many steps are there? And he's like, well, I don't know. He's like, you mean you've heard people coming up these steps all these years and you haven't known how many steps there are, you know, just listening to people climb the stairs, you know, the powers of observation. And, uh, I, I really think that that's probably the biggest thing I got out of Sherlock Holmes is just the powers of observation and deduction just like being quiet and just observing. 
It's interesting because Conan Doyle was a physician. He was an eye doctor and he modeled Sherlock Holmes after one of his medical professors who was very observant and just had a lot of the same characteristics as Sherlock Holmes. And then the the show House MD is modeled after Sherlock Holmes because you have Holmes and Watson and House and Wilson and um, there's a a whole book that goes over the parallels between House MD, which is one of my favorite shows, and Sherlock Holmes. So it kind of has gone full circle from medicine to crime to medicine again. Oh, it's so cool. No, I I love that the mysteries and like like the, um, you know, it's those kind of things really just they're so intriguing and they're so fun. So definitely could geek out on that kind of stuff for, for hours. Cause I love, um, I don't know. I just love it. It's so, it's probably the most, it was the most interesting thing to listen to on the, on the trip as well, because it's like, I mean, there's so many other things out there, but it was like other audiobooks didn't even, you know, I was just like, okay, how do I hadn't spent enough time with Sherlock Holmes up till then I had, you know, heard a couple of his stories, you know, study in Scarlet and maybe Hound of the Baskervilles and whatever else. And I was kind of like, okay, what is, you know, Sir, what, what else does, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle have on Sherlock Holmes and getting that complete works was just like, okay, this is awesome. So, yeah. So that's super cool that you're, you you love that stuff because um, I think it can teach us all a lot, right? Even though it's, he's a fictional character. It's like, what can't we learn from some of the simple you know, the simple, uh, the simple truths that lie within those stories. Exactly. So when you wrapped up with this bike trip, uh, in Maine, um, what, what, what did you have in store after that trip concluded? Cause it had to have been a pretty transformational experience and give you some perspective on what your future life plans were. Well, I, I tried not to, on the trip, I was thinking about all kinds of things. And on the last seven days, I had a buddy join me. Well, we, he met me in Ticonderoga, New York, and we finished together. And that was our super memorable days because it's really fun to share those kind of memories with people about doing really neat things. You're doing them alone. Sometimes it's there's a really neat aspect to it. But then when you share it with someone who's a really close friend or person that's near and dear to you, it's like, okay, you know, you there was a, another level of, um, another level of, you know, I don't know what another, it was just taken to another level, I guess you could say. And we talked about it quite a bit then too. And I was thinking, well, I knew I was still planning on going back to working with that pediatric surgeon I was working with and doing more research for her and planning on going to, um, going to medical school, pursuing that route. And it's interesting because I, at the end of the trip, I was kind of, so, so in the, so that was in the background. So I was thinking that the whole time, like I'm going to finish this trip and it's going to have given me reprieve. It's going to have allowed me to heal even more and I'm going to get back home and I'm just going to put my nose to the grindstone and just start working again. You know, keep going back to what I was doing before. Right. And it's interesting that whole time I had been riding things must have things shifted for me because I got back home and I started doing some of the work and it just wasn't as it wasn't as fulfilling as it had been prior and I was like wow this is really interesting I don't know what it but maybe it's because I think I was listening to myself a little bit more and what my my maybe my needs in life and maybe my desires and 
I, I actually was a little bit more in tune, obviously, with what I was wanting out of life. So working on those projects that I was working on, I realized that, hmm, there might be a little bit more to explore here that, you know, to figure out what I really want to do. And she really encouraged that. She really encouraged me to like, hey, go check out the things that you want to do. She always was trying to talk me out of being a surgeon too, like, you know, sweetly. She'd say, you know, anesthesiologists really got it good. You know what I mean? She would like, she would just kind of like, just test me. You know what I mean? Just to say like, hey, there's so many other things you could do out there. I mean, you could go be an actor. You can go be an artist. Like, you could go do anything. Like, why do you want to do this? And so she really encouraged me to think outside the box, too, and be like, hey, like, what else is out there? And having studied nutrition and been and healed pretty holistically, I stopped using, you know, medications and things like that really early on and just kind of started focusing on, like, lifestyle stuff. I was like, hey, lifestyle medicine, you know, I didn't really know about lifestyle medicine at the time. And, you know, that's, I mean... It's, I guess it's the foundations of, I hadn't thought about medicine being foundational. I thought about it as, you know, pills, potions, powder, surgery, stuff like that. And so I went and shadowed some naturopathic doctors a couple times because I was like, hey, I wonder what these people are doing. Like I looked into integrated medicine, found them, and ended up spending a couple of days with them in their office. And I think it must have been like the second or third visit with them. I really realized like, this is so cool. Like they spent in Arizona, there's a lot of autonomy. So they would spend 60 to 90 minutes with the client visiting with them about their nutrition, their lifestyle, their supplements, their drugs that they were taking, their diseases, like really doing a great physical exam, going over lab work, you know, if they needed an IV or, you know, I mean, everything, they covered the bases. And I was like, that is really, really cool. So it didn't take long for me to really realize that, okay, this is, you know, and I had been studying for the MCATs. I had been doing so much. I was with the Princeton, doing the Princeton review course for the MCAT. I was working on all this stuff. And so for me to go and take a couple of days and go shadow these naturopathic doctors, I was like, these guys, what they do, this is amazing. It was a husband and wife combo. I was like, what they do with people is amazing. And they're helping them change their lives. They're not like three minutes, you know, hands on the, you know, hands on the doorknob. You know, and I and I give a ton of credit to the surgeon that I spent time with because she was like, she was such an anomaly. She was like 15 minutes with clients. She would sit down next to them. You know, she'd give them hugs. I mean, she was like, she was a totally, the personality was so different than those of what people talk about being like a conventional doc. And she's one top doc of the year. I mean, she's she's definitely exceptional. But this was taking everything to another level with the amount of time that someone could spend with a person. And with the stuff you could cover, the things you could get through. So that was really a transformative experience for me, being able to spend the time um, at their practice. And the practice is Southwest Integrated Medicine, and they're in uh, North Phoenix. And yeah, Rob and Christy were just, they were awesome. And I, I still, I, I, I love them. They're a great couple. Um, love to have them as referral partners and things like that too, and send them clients because they, they do stuff that's different than I do. Um, but that was, you know, that was, um, yeah, kind of taking it, taking it back to that was really realizing that, okay, I didn't spend that time with them. And I was like, I want to do this. So I dropped the Princeton review course. I stopped studying for the MCAT. I and uh, I actually was continued doing it until I had done my interview at Bastyr University. I applied to, I looked into naturopathic schools, and there was only seven in the U.S. and Canada combined accredited naturopathic medical institutions. And because 
Um, well, I looked at the, I didn't even really consider the one here in Arizona because I looked on the maps and I was like, okay, it's right in Tempe, Arizona. You know, um, Tempe is right in the middle of the city. I don't really care to be at a school that's right in the middle of the city. I'd rather go somewhere that's a little bit more out, you know, in nature. And so I went and checked out the school in Washington, Bastyr University, and it's not too far out of Seattle. It's in like a state park. It's gorgeous. It's surrounded by like 40 acres of park and right on a lake. Very beautiful. It was like, reminded me of like Hogwarts. And um, nice. yeah, it was really cool. I mean, and so the, it was, that was a transformative experience. I signed, I, it was so, it was amazing, Nick, like how quick I could come up with, you know, I, my change my mind on that stuff. And I made that decision because I knew, I knew when I was there that this was what I was supposed to do. And I think we need to listen. That's like one, one thing that I, one thing I think we should all do is maybe listen to that voice a little bit too. Sometimes when we have those moments of inspired, you know, those intuition, those intuitive moments are really important that we like key into those because if we don't, we might have missed a really pivotal point in our life where we could have gone and done something that was really, you know, would have maybe left us maybe moved, touched and inspired. Yeah, and I think that's key. And you probably have a little bit more of a uh, a hardwired ability to do that because you spent like a month and a half just with you and your your own thoughts, and not a whole lot of interaction of like, oh, every spare moment I'm going to be flipping through a Kindle or an iPad or a, a laptop, or have every waking moment occupied just zapping my brain with digital media. So I think that that gives us a better ability to kind of be in introspective and respond to those intuitive moments. Amen to that. Yes, definitely. And, you know, to be, to just check out of, you know, out of the media and check into your life, it gives you a different, in such a big way, it gives you such a different uh, perspective on things. And it's, definitely helped me with my perspective in life. Even now, like I spend days on the computer and stuff like that too. And I'm like, Oh man, I need to get out and just go do something. I need to go for a long bike ride. I need to go do something else. I need to do something where I can let my brain just be free. And like you're saying, you know, not zapping it the whole time with digital media or this or that. So it's important for all, for everybody because digital, digital breaks. So how did things continue from there when you went through school and, and what, what was that experience like? Cause I can tell that, um, this is going to kind of be a bookend because I didn't want to shortchange all the things we covered with the TBI and the, and the, the bike trip and all the things we've covered. It's been phenomenal content and I don't want to rush through um, your schooling to what you currently believe in practice. So I'm, I'm definitely going, going to want to do a episode two. So I figure, uh, the next 10 minutes or so we can kind of go through your experience in school and kind of, um, give our listeners a little bit of a 
Uh, here's a little bit of a taste, baby birds, on what volume two is going to be with on what you currently believe and what, how you practice and what principles are kind of guiding your, your current health and your interactions with your patients. Uh, so if we can kind of take that last 10 minutes or so and just go through from, from school to kind of set up uh, the listeners for, to what they're going to get in, in uh, episode two. Yeah. So school was really neat because what kind of set me up for school, I actually knew going into school that I wanted to practice that lifestyle, what we call what, so in allopathic medicine, they call it lifestyle medicine. And I think of it as naturopathic medicine, which is just basics like diet, sleep, exercise, fasting, you know, the life print, the things that give us our vitality and, you know, our basic, basic fundamental underlying keys to health and happiness. And so that's kind of what I wanted to learn more about, get scientifically grounded in those and really spend more time with that stuff. So going to Bastyr was really an amazing experience because that's what we did. We spent time on that stuff and talked about it a lot. One of the doctors who inspired me to, to go the route that I did was a, um, a very prominent nutritional medicine physician here in the U.S. And he... I listened to a lot of his radio shows that he did back in the day. It must have been the 90s, but I listened to those. And I ended up doing an internship with him after my first year. No, before I started medical school, sorry. So I did a, a whole summer internship with him. He really influenced the way that I went into medical school thinking, okay, now I'm going to do things a little bit even more differently because I spent that time with, with Joel. And so having done that, then going into school after my first year, I ended up deciding to do a internship at a fasting facility in Northern California. And so that really unpacked a whole new can of worms right there, which was like, wait a minute, this is incredible. Look at the power of fasting. This is ridiculous. So I learned about fasting. And so throughout all of school, my my emphasis was diet, sleep, exercise, fasting, you know, and growth, you know, spiritual and mental and emotional, just growth in life. And of course, being able to just to, uh, to also unplug. So those things are things that I really spent a lot of time learning and digesting. And I didn't really, I, so the therapeutics classes, like the whole, you know, injections and pain management and physical medicine, I love physical medicine and I love getting it done to me. But I didn't want to focus on that stuff. I wanted to like spend time doing things that I was really passionate about. And that's what I ended up doing. So I, I, I focused on that through school. And after school, I applied for a residency. And I ended up in Northern California at True North Health Center in, uh, in Santa Rosa, California, which is where I met Dr. Ben. And I was their resident for – I was their – the resident for 2016 into 2017. And that residency really gave me the tools and the power to do what I do now, which is working with people, lifestyle medicine in an outpatient setting, because True North is inpatient, but in an outpatient setting, helping people change their lives with the fundamental principles of diet, sleep, exercise, fasting, you know, growth, spirituality, things like that. So that's kind of what has brought me to where I am now. And that was from school on. And that's how that's, that's where I am. Yeah. And I think it would be a phenomenal 
um, like episode two, if we just like, if we went through the pillars, like the pillars of your practice, like the things you just listed, I think we could nerd out for like an hour and a half on just that stuff because I'm a huge advocate of fasting. Um, granted, I am like, I'm like the, the antithesis of like, I'm not anti-plant-based, but I eat tons of vegetables, yep. but I, I source my meat from like grass-fed, pastured, antibiotic-free, local, like farmer's market meat that's not like feedlot, like uh, Food Inc. Yes, kind of. absolutely. Uh, so I'm, I'm a very conscious carnivore. Uh, so to speak, but I use meat more as a condiment now and vegetables is kind of the, the bulk of my plate. So I think that, um, I, I can agree a lot with, uh, the, the fasting and then the, the plant-based model, because I just kind of do that, but then I add some conscious, uh, meat choices to that, uh, cause it's just more sustainable for me. Uh, but, uh, I think that it would be an amazing like second episode if you were able to make the time to to talk with us about just the pillars of your practice in because i think we could really dive into those like 20 minutes a piece and we wouldn't have to like rush and shortchange all the the wisdom that you have to share on those things well that would be fun yeah and and i you know with the with with all those with all the pillars i think the pillars are just are so good. And, and you know what? Health is unique to each of us. You know what I think, Nick, what you brought up about like the meat and stuff. Like I'm not dogmatic about my nutritional preaching with people, with, with what I help people with. I mean, it's like, you know, just, this is a new thing for me. I don't know if you are into hunting, but I am, are you a hunter? Yeah, I grew up hunting. I don't do it as much in Texas just because you have to pay for leases or no, like really, wealthy people that have land and I have patients that have them, but it's just not as convenient as going out in the backyard. And right. Hunting. Right. Yeah. So this year I got, I'm, I'm starting my, so, okay. So yeah, I could definitely dive into the whole nutrition piece, but yeah, I just all let's, let's just, I got drawn for a, um, for elk hunting this year. So this is going to be my first year actually doing this now uh, going, coming from, you know, a person who I, like we're talking about I condiment portions are what I use for animal products typically you know what I mean more less you know less is more to a certain degree but it's like I don't I'm not definitely not (laughs) so that's that's how I that's how I live my life um and I and I feel like it's I feel like it's a really health promoting lifestyle and I don't think that animal products and health are mutually exclusive at all I think they can be very like you're talking about very well picked you know and used appropriately to maximize people health maximize people's health for sure so yeah and, and we can geek out on nutrition um you know like we talked about so nutrition fasting sleep faith and just growth as as humans i mean and and then resetting i think resetting is a, is a really big one um those are probably what we'll and we'll talk more specifically about each of those pillars in, in the, um, in, and then of course values. So I work, I work a lot with people on making sure that they really are in tune with what their values are in life, because without, you don't know without knowing what your internal compass and your values are, 
people can kind of sail away and sail into the sunset, not really going in the right direction. So really helping people dial in there, that internal compass is a really important thing and counseling can be very helpful with that. It's like living without knowing what your values are is like spending money without having a budget. It's just, you're just kind of, you're going to wonder where life went if you don't have your values dialed in. So that's the good stuff. And yeah, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's get, let's, let's have another uh, bit of time together. I know you've got a busy day in front of you. You've got a bunch of clients. You're a, you're a busy, busy doc and you do amazing work with people. And I think, yeah, I think Ben for the introduction, definitely it's, it's been uh, awesome getting to spend this last hour with you, you know, a little over an hour now, actually almost an hour and a half getting to, getting yeah. to time, time gets away when you're having yeah. fun, man. So we'll, uh, we'll can you uh, let people know where they can contact you just if they want to check you out before we get episode two out? Yeah. I mean, if, if they want to follow uh, on Instagram, I'm relatively active. I'm not super active on Instagram. It's not like you're going to get a daily story from me, but I do posts on Instagram. Um, it's uh, LifeDoc, L-I-F-E-D-O-C. Um, and on Facebook, it's LifeDocAZ. So all one word, LifeDocAZ. And then my email, people can, oh, my, my website is lifedocaz.com. So, and uh, okay. it's all spelled out. Yep. Excellent. Well, I look forward to episode two and we will uh, wrap this up and, and we'll touch base with you soon. Awesome, Nick. Have an awesome day. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to hearing from you soon.